You're going to face tests at some point in time. But the thing that's so fascinating about what James says is that we should rejoice at the fact that our faith gets tested. Count it all joy when, your faith, when you face various trials. It reminds me of something David wrote back in Psalm chapter, um, Psalm chapter 26. David welcomed God's test. David said, prove me, O Lord, and try me. Test my heart and my mind, for your steadfast love is before my eyes, and I walk in your faithfulness. David wanted to be tested. David welcomed the test. Do we possess the same mindset, the same attitude as David? Do we understand that there is something beneficial about tests? Do we rejoice at being tested? Maybe not as much as we should, maybe not at all. But we need to recognize that tests are inevitable and tests are beneficial. We also need to understand why tests are beneficial. They reveal whether or not faith is real. You know, God wanted to know if Abraham's confidence, if Abraham's faith was in him, was in God, or if it was in his son. So the test, as spelled out in Genesis chapter 22 and verse 2, is, is a real doozy. That's a theological word for the record. God said, take your son, your only son, Isaac, whom you love, and go to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains of which I shall tell you. Here's the child that's been promised, the, the, the child that Abraham has waited 25 long years to receive. And now God's telling him, hey, here is what I need you to do. I need you to kill that kid. That is a test no one wants to face, but it's going to show whether or not Abraham, Abraham's faith in God is real. We've noted multiple times in this series on the life of Abraham how his faith has fluctuated at times, how he leaves Ur and goes to Haran and ends up making that trip all the way to the promised land, trusting in a God that he just got introduced to, abandoning everything that was his safety net. And it shows tremendous faith. But after he arrives in the promised land, after he arrives in Canaan, suddenly a famine hits, and he's not trusting God to take care of his needs. He, ups, uh, he packs up everything and travels into Egypt where he hears there's good land. And we see that that faith that was so monumental that it was willing to leave everything behind, now all of a sudden is so weak that he has to seek out his own protection financially. We can see how his faith was a roller coaster ride at times. And right now, God is testing his faith with the biggest challenge ever to see if that faith is real. Now, this is not a test that God asks anybody else to take. And the reason he gives this test to Abraham is because this test is the, the ultimate means of determining the authenticity of Abraham's faith. And that's the purpose of all tests, to determine the authenticity of faith. 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 6 and 7 says, In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith may be found to result in the praise, glory, and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. See, the testing of our faith is something to celebrate because faith tests are necessary for the authentication 
of our faith. And authenticated faith brings glory to God. And so tests are not only inevitable, but they also reveal whether or not your faith is real. And tests also result in greater understanding. Here's the thing about tests. They prove whether or not, or or, excuse me, here's the thing about tests. They increase your knowledge. You know, the thing is, you can go to school nowadays. You can go to take college classes where where you, uh, oh, I just lost the word. You know that word for when you don't actually get grades, where you just audit, audit, there it is. You can go audit the class. I knew it would come around. You can go audit the class. You don't, ha- you don't get graded on anything. You don't even have to take the test. You're just there to learn the information. But guess what? You're less likely to retain the information because you were never challenged to show your understanding of it. Tests are beneficial because they, they lead to a greater understanding. I want you to notice something at the end of this story, at the end of Genesis chapter 22. If you go down to verse 14, after Abraham passed the test, look at what he did. Genesis chapter 22, verse 14. So Abraham called the name of that place, the Lord will provide. As it is said to this day, on the mount of the Lord, it shall be provided. Now, when this test was over, Abraham had a new title to associate with God. That title in Hebrew is Jehovah-Jerah. And it means the God who provides. That's what he called this location. He had a new title title, a new way to refer to God. I want you to notice something that you may overlook easily throughout the book of Genesis. Back in chapter 14 and verse 18, Melchizedek referred to God as El Elyon, God Most High. In Genesis chapter 16 and verse 13, when Hagar left the family after the whole uh, pregnancy debacle and the mistreatment uh, that she did to Sarah, and then Sarah reversed on her, She was found out in the wilderness by God, and God sent her back to Abraham and Sarah. And she called God Elroy, the God who sees. And then in Genesis chapter 17 and verse 1, as God is speaking to Abraham again and and, and instituting this circumcision thing and and promising Isaac one last time, even promising the the, the, the time frame of his birth, God revealed himself as El Shaddai, God Almighty. Those are the titles associated with God up to this point. And so for Abraham, the names and titles he's heard of God are these. He's heard God Most High, he's heard God Who Sees, and he's heard God Almighty. And now, after this experience, he has a new title. The God Who Provides. You see, when this test was over, over, Abraham had a greater understanding, a new level of understanding about the God he served. And that's one thing that tests do to us. They lead us to a greater understanding of God, of our relationship with him, of his expectations for us. And I don't think Abraham was the only one to gain a new level of understanding about God here. I think Isaac did too. Because one interesting tidbit about this story is that it's the last time in the Bible that we read about in which Abraham hears a message from God. But it's simultaneously the first time 
that Isaac hears such a message. You look at verse 16 and 18, and here's what Isaac heard. He heard that because you have done this, because Abraham was willing to sacrifice Isaac, because you have done this and have not withheld your son, your only son, I will surely bless you and I will surely multiply your offspring as the stars of heaven and as the sand that is on the seashore. And your offspring shall possess the gate of his enemies. And in your offspring shall all the nations of the earth be blessed because you have obeyed my voice. So for the first time, Isaac hears God's promise to keep that covenant he's heard his daddy talk about all those years. And that opportunity was his because he was there when his dad passed the test. Never underestimate the benefits of a good test because they lead to some greater understanding. With that talk about tests, I really want you to consider what Abraham is learning in his test I want you to consider the questions that this test posed for Abraham because they're questions that our faith tests will eventually pose for us. The first of these questions is this. Is my first response obedience? I want you to think about it. Abraham's pretty familiar with God's voice. God's spoken to him many times throughout his story, and so he's not going to mistake it when he hears it. So he knew who was talking to him when, when God ordered this test back in verse 2. So for Abraham, the challenge is not to determine whether or not this was from God. The challenge was to determine how quickly he was going to get around to doing it. Procrastination would give him more time to spend with Isaac. Procrastination would give him an opportunity to plead with God for another option. I mean, think about it. He's done such pleading with God before. You can go back to uh, the time when God told him about his plans for Sodom and Gomorrah, and he pleaded with God to reduce the amount of people that would be necessary for him to spare that city. You can even go uh, back to when God shared with him the, the plan of giving a child via Sarah back in Genesis chapter 17. And Abraham laughed at that proposition. And in that same chapter, you can see Abraham plead with God to accept Ishmael as the chosen child instead of trying to use their 190-year-old bodies to produce a child. Abraham has, ple has pled with God on multiple occasions and then procrastination would have given him another opportunity for that. And procrastination might give God more time to change his mind about this sacrifice request. But I want you to look at the first few words of verse 3. After God orders the test in verse 2, the very next thing we read is that Abraham rose early in the morning. He didn't procrastinate. He didn't deliberate. He didn't hesitate. And I think it's because Abraham knew that obedience doesn't do those things. Obedience doesn't procrastinate. Obedience doesn't deliberate whether or not I should do this. Obedience doesn't hesitate to obey. Those things are mutually exclusive with obedience. 
There's a story in Luke chapter 9 about some potential disciples, some guys that, that could have become Jesus' followers. There's three of them mentioned in, in, in the, at the end of Luke chapter 9, but there's one in particular mentioned in verse 59 and verse 60. He was the second potential disciple. And Jesus approached this guy and he said, follow me. And this individual requested for time to first go and bury his father. It seems like a reasonable request. And Jesus' response to that request was, leave the dead to bury their own dead, but as for you, go and proclaim the kingdom of God. And that seems kind of insensitive on Jesus' part. But we have to remember that the text does not indicate that this father had passed away yet. In fact, the phrase used by this man to first, uh, to first go and bury his father, that phrase is a common Near Eastern figure of speech still in use today to refer to a son's responsibility to help his father in the family business until the father died and the inheritance was distributed. And so this individual's request was a way of saying, I'll follow you after I've fulfilled my other obligations. After my father passes away and, and I don't have to, to take, take care of him and do those things anymore, after that time comes, I'll follow you. So this individual is indirectly indicating that his obedience has to wait. It can't happen yet. I've got to put it on hold. And Jesus' response to let the dead bury the dead, you go and proclaim the kingdom, that was his way of saying that obedience should take precedence over everything else. Don't procrastinate. Don't hesitate. I don't know about you, but obedience comes a lot easier when I actually understand what God's got going on. When I understand God's plan, obedience comes easier. It's when I don't know all the details that obedience is much more difficult. But here's the thing. Whether I know what God is doing or I don't know what God is doing, I still have two options, or really... I have to make a decision between two choices, to obey or to not obey. It doesn't matter if I know all the details or not. My choices are obey or disobey, just as it was for Abraham. You know, as a parent, you tell your kid, go do this or go do that or go here, go there, and you expect them to do it. And sometimes they ask, why? Some of you ask that, why? Because I said so. Don't you hate when your parents say that? Because I said so. Until I became a parent, I despised that response. Despised it. There was a time in my life when I said I would never say that to my child. Now, I have succeeded in at least one thing that I said I would never do, but this was not it. And here's the thing. When it comes to God, because I said so is a perfectly reasonable response from Him. We don't need to understand everything that God's doing or His whole plan in place. Because He said so is all we need to know. And that's all Abraham needed. See, Abraham didn't hesitate. He didn't deliberate. He didn't procrastinate. Abraham got up the next day early to go execute his son 
because God said so. Do you have that level of faith? You don't have to ask questions when God says so. That you don't put it off when God says so. That you don't search for alternatives when God says so. Because you know what? I think Abraham demonstrated to us here the very thing that God's own son would demonstrate in the garden when he prayed. And he, he begged God for another way, but when all was said and done, he said, not my will but yours be done. That's the exact same mentality Abraham has here. But is that the mentality we have? Because our tests of faith are going to expose this question. Whether or not our first response in all situations is obedience. But it's also going to expose this question. Is my best what I bring to worship? Consider for a moment what Isaac meant to Abraham. He's the son Abraham waited 25 years to have. He's the only child of his beloved wife, Sarah. He is the personal evidence that God keeps his promises. He is the child through whom God's covenant will continue. And after God had him send Ishmael away back in Genesis chapter 21, he is the only child in Abraham's house. So Isaac is Abraham's best. Like Abel with the firstborn of his flock, Isaac is the best blessing that Abraham has received. And he's what God asks Abraham to bring to the altar. You know, we've got no problem when God wants us to give up something that we know is bad for us. When God asks us to sacrifice something we know is wrong, it's pretty easy to give that up. It's when God calls on us to sacrifice something important that we tend to procrastinate. But Abraham doesn't here. He doesn't procrastinate. He has reached the point in his life where the most important thing to him is to please God. Did you notice that in Genesis chapter 22 and verse 12, when God responds to what Abraham's doing here, he says, now I know. Now I know that you fear me because you won't even withhold your son from me. You see, in this moment, Abraham showed that God was so important in his life that the most important thing in his life, that the best thing in his life was not going to be withheld from God. He was going to be willing to sacrifice his best for God. I want you to notice something that, that's mentioned in this text. Look at Genesis chapter 22 and verse 5. After Abraham told his servants to stay here with the donkey... He said, I and the boy will go over there and worship. You stay here. We're going to go over there and worship. That's the first time the word worship appears in the Bible. You know that when the first use of the word worship in the New Testament is? 
It's in Matthew chapter 2 and verse 2. And it's when some wise men from the east show up with some gifts and say, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star when it rose and have, came, have come to worship him. These two appearances of the word worship, the first one in the whole of the Bible and the first one in the New Testament, they teach us that worshiping God is about bringing your best. In the case of Abraham, it was bringing his son. In the case of those wise men, it was bringing these extravagant gifts for that day to the Son of God question I want you to think about is, do you bring God your best? When you worship God, do you come with the spirit that I'm going to give him everything I've got today? Or do you come thinking, man, that preacher's so boring. I want to sit through another one of his long sermons, hear his horrible entry jokes, and listen to him talk about his daughter way too much. Do you come thinking, oh, so-and-so's leading singing, so that means we're going to be singing a lot of those new songs. Or so-and-so's leading singing, so that means we're going to sing a lot of those old songs. Do you come thinking, oh, did you see who's doing the prayers today? That's going to take forever. What is your approach to worship? Do you come with your best Because that's what Abraham did. And tests expose whether or not God's going to get our best. And I want to share with you one more question that I think tests expose. Is my trust in my reason or is my trust in his provision? I'll explain what I mean with this. I think the most difficult part of this test for Abraham was not in making the decision of whether or not he was going to do it, but in answering the question when Isaac asked, where's the lamb? But I think Abraham was prepared for that because he responded in verse 8 by saying, God will provide for himself the lamb for a burnt offering. And I think Abraham believed that. Abraham had reached a point in his life where he could trust in God's promises more than he could in his own ability to understand those promises. I want you to notice something that's said back in verse 5 again, Genesis 22 and verse 5, something that's easily overlooked. When Abraham tells those servants to stay with the donkeys, he says, I and the boy will go over there and worship and come again to you. Implicit in that statement is a declaration that me and him are going there, but he and I are coming back here. He spoke about the return of Isaac, even though the events that are supposed to unfold might not bring Isaac back. But I think Abraham believed that no matter what happened next, God was going to give Isaac back to him. I think he's speaking from the depth of his faith. I don't think he's deceiving them. 
I think he really believed that both he and Isaac would return. Even though at this point in recorded uh, biblical history, no one's been brought back from the dead yet, Abraham had reason to believe that God could bring somebody back from the dead. And that reason was walking next to him up that mountain because his body and Sarah's body were as good as dead. And yet they produced Isaac because of God. I believe that Abraham had so much faith in God at this point that he believed that even if he killed Isaac, God would bring him back to life. In fact, that's kind of what the author of Hebrews said in chapter 11, verse 17 through 19. Author of Hebrews said, By faith Abraham, when he was tested, offered up Isaac, and he who had received the promises was in the act of offering up his only son, of whom it, is, it was said, Through Isaac shall your offspring be named. And he considered that God was able even to raise him from the dead, from which, figuratively speaking, he did receive him back. See, I think Abraham reasoned in his own mind that God's ability to bring Isaac back was more compatible with God's character than God making a promise he didn't keep. Since God is a promise keeper, and Isaac was the fulfillment of God's promise to Abraham, then Abraham came to the conclusion that God must be able to give him back because God is faithful even when we are faithless, as 2 Timothy chapter 2 and verse 13 says. Do you believe that? Do you have so much faith in God that you believe He can still do the impossible? That's really what this question is about. A test of how much you actually believe God is capable of in your life. When we look at this uh, this story in the life of Abraham, what we see is someone whose faith is really challenged in a unique way. But from it come three questions that you and I are eventually going to be tested with in our own lives in some way, shape, or form. I don't know what it's going to be for you. It could be a medical diagnosis. It could be a test in the form of marital strife. It could be a test in the form of the loss of a job. It could be the test, a test in the form of Uh, of some great loss in your home, the death of a loved one, or a natural disaster. We're all going to face tests, but the question is, are we going to face them like Abraham? Tonight you might be going through a test. You might need some help. And we're here to offer that help, whether it's praying for you or standing with you, encouraging you with God's Word. It may be that tonight you realize that you need God, that you need to confess that Jesus Christ is His risen Son, that you need to repent of your sins, and that you need to be baptized for the forgiveness of those sins. 
I, I don't know what's going on in your life necessarily. But I know that we serve a God who does, and we serve a God who can do the impossible. So not if you're at a point that you need to make a decision, that you need to change your life, that you need to make sure it's right with him, then we invite you to come while together we stand and sing.